We're starting a little three-part series today, we've called it Words for Our World, just reflecting on some of the themes that have emerged out of the book of Ecclesiastes, going back uh, into Ecclesiastes to think about how that theme appears through the book, but also reflecting on the scriptures more widely. And today I'm going to reflect particularly on Ecclesiastes and that passage that Pat just read to us from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to think about the theme of prosperity. But let me pray and uh, then you can follow the sermon outline um, on the white piece of paper. Father, we thank you that your word continues to speak to us in our day now, that it continues to speak into our lives and we pray that you would help us to hear your voice to us personally this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the US, there's a town in Newbury County, South Carolina, called Prosperity. About 1,200 people live there. The town used to be called Frog Level because of its low-lying location and the large number of frogs living in adjacent ponds. But in 1873, the residents decided together that Prosperity would be a better name. And undoubtedly, they were correct. But here is where it gets interesting. In the last US census taken in 2020, the median household income in Prosperity was under $48,000. That's household income. The unemployment rate was very close to 50%. Less than 14% of the residents had a university education. Almost 10% of the population of Prosperity had no health care coverage. 17% of the population were living below the poverty line. So those who voted for the name change back in 1873 were strong on aspiration, but as far as being predictors of the future goes, they were terrible. Those 1,200 people live in a town that promises them much, but for the most part, fails to deliver. Living in prosperity, it turns out, is not that prosperous after all. This morning, I want us to think about prosperity. What is it really? How do people find it? How important is it to people in our world? And and what does the Bible have to say about it, especially the teacher of Ecclesiastes and the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy? I've got two main points today, and under both of them, I'm going to ask you to think about what we've learnt from Ecclesiastes through the experience of the teacher and then what we learn from the Apostle Paul's reflections in his days and then finally what all that means for us in our time. And so firstly, the pursuit of satisfaction in prosperity because many in our time hope for satisfaction by being prosperous and this is far from new, of course. People searched for this kind of satisfaction in the time of Paul as well And the teacher of Ecclesiastes told us that he'd done the same. So let's remind ourselves firstly about that. Perhaps you could turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And let me read to you again from verse 4 in that chapter. This is what the teacher said. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I acquired male and female singers in a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. So surely what the teacher describes here is his very prosperous life, at least by any worldly measure. He's made it. He's got everything he could possibly want and probably lots of things he doesn't need. But does he find satisfaction in it? Listen to the very next verse, verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Chasing after the wind, he says. Meaningless like a mist that vanishes. Nothing was gained. Doesn't sound like a satisfied man, does it? And this is the constant refrain through the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the chapters that follow, the teacher offers us several observations that support his conclusion. He reminds us later in chapter 2 that when you die, you have to leave the fruit of your toil to someone else and that person might use it foolishly. He reminds us in chapter 5 of several things, as we heard again in our reading before. For example, of how the rich just tend to get richer and the poor often support the lifestyles of those in authority over them. And how those who consume a lot increase as their goods increase and find their lives harder and harder to manage. And how wealth makes many restless and anxious and deprives them of sleep. And how hoarding can actually damage a person's well-being and character. And in the middle of chapter 5, we heard again this morning this very striking summary, verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And then in later chapters, he also reminds us how the prosperous life can be interrupted or permanently changed by sudden disasters that come upon people unexpectedly. And he reminds us as well of how even the wealthy can't protect themselves from corrupt and foolish government. And ultimately, the refrain he keeps returning to again and again is this stark truth that death makes a mockery of all we seek to gain and all we hope to enjoy. Everyone dies, and we know not when. And this, above all things, makes the pursuit of satisfaction through prosperity meaningless. And of course, it's not just that ancient teacher who says such things. Jesus himself makes similar points. Jesus tells us that treasures on earth are always eaten away by moth and rust and that the only lasting treasure is heavenly. On another occasion, he tells a story about a foolish man who thought he had it made in the shade, but who then died suddenly with his barns full, gone before he could enjoy his fortune. And it's with that teaching of Jesus in mind that Paul writes the things he does at the end of 1 Timothy, as we read before as well. In 1 Timothy 6, 7, he says that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And he also says, verses 9 and 10, that the desire for prosperity often ruins people. And not just materially, but especially spiritually. The love of money, he says, leads to many kinds of evil, but in particular, it causes some to wander from the faith 
and to pierce themselves with many griefs. And then in verse 17 of that passage, he says that people are foolish to put their hope in wealth because it's so uncertain. These are not new thoughts to us, are they? It's almost as if the Apostle Paul had been reading Ecclesiastes because he too has reached the conclusion that the pursuit of satisfaction in prosperity is like chasing the wind. Meaningless, meaningless, says the Apostle. And whilst many today, I think, would find that conclusion uncomfortable, if not objectionable, I also don't think it's hard to find in our time many who would agree. And not just Christians either. There are people all over the globe, I think, who, like the teacher of Ecclesiastes, have learnt the vanity of the world by having it all and coming away feeling empty. I suspect many of us could tell stories of those we've known who, like that rich man in Jesus' story, have been very prosperous in a worldly sense, but have been struck down by some tragedy or whose life has ended suddenly. I also suspect many of us could tell stories of people we've known who are very, very wealthy and also very, very unhappy. I often wonder whether if you got to be a fly on the wall in many of the houses of Northbridge, whether you'd see exactly that phenomenon. Home after home. Of course, not everyone's willing to admit that the aspiration of their lives is built on false advertising. But some are willing to acknowledge it. And every Christian ought to be. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that we Christians should have a reputation for this kind of conviction. That satisfaction is not to be found in prosperity. That's what we believe because God's word has made us wise. And because the wisdom of God has enabled us to see the truth about our world more clearly. We know, do we not, that the pursuit of satisfaction in wealth is a lot like living in prosperity, South Carolina. It's the promise of something wonderful, but a promise which spectacularly fails to deliver. But my second point today is about the possibility of joy with or without prosperity. And here I'm making a distinction between satisfaction and joy Satisfaction, in the sense we've just been talking about it, is the discovery of meaning, a deep contentment with life. And we've seen that the Bible teaches us not to look for that kind of satisfaction in prosperity. But joy, on the other hand, is possible. And by joy here I mean enjoying the things God gives, even if they're not the source of ultimate satisfaction. And this distinction between satisfaction and joy runs right through Ecclesiastes, it seems to me. This is a distinction the teacher himself makes at one level because there is a repeated refrain right through the book that the pursuit of prosperity and many other things is meaningless. But there's also a repeated acknowledgement that God gives good gifts for our enjoyment. Even in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes where he says so much about the meaningless pursuit of wisdom, and of reputation, and of pleasure, and wealth. He still finishes the chapter by saying this, this is verse 24, a person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. 
You see, he acknowledges the possibility of some small s satisfaction, not the kind of satisfaction that fills a whole life with a sense of meaning and purpose, but nevertheless some satisfaction in daily work and some enjoyment of the things that daily work brings, especially eating and drinking. And the teacher comes back to this note and strikes this theme time and time again in Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 12. He says, there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good work while they live. Chapter 3, verse 22, there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work. Chapter 5, verse 19, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Chapter 8, verse 15, so I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Chapter 9, verses 7 to 9, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you. Those verses are just a taste of this theme in the book. And that that last one from chapter 9, I think, captures the tension in the teacher's writing perfectly. Enjoy life, he says, yes, but enjoy it, quote, all the days of this meaningless life God has given you. They're, They're both key threads of his teaching side by side. Life is meaningless if you're seeking ultimate satisfaction in these things that God gives, but nevertheless, you can enjoy them. And you notice that God is the giver of both, both the meaningless life and the enjoyment of his gifts along the way. And what I hope you also hear in those verses I've read is that the possibility of joy is something that God gives to the rich and the poor, the prosperous and the needy. The wealthy may enjoy their work and their wealth and their wine, but even the one who has very little can find joy in their daily toil and in the food they eat when the day is done. This gift of joy is not only for the prosperous, but it is for the prosperous as well. And this note is also struck by the Apostle Paul in his writings. So listen again to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And verses 6 to 8. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. There's that reality check in verse 7 that reminds us not to look for lasting satisfaction in the things that we have. But there's also the acknowledgement that contentment is possible. God gives food and clothing. And when we seek to live in a godly way whilst being content with what we have, we make a gain, Paul says. And listen again to verse 17 in 1 Timothy 6. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Once again, the reminder not to put our hope in wealth is given to us alongside this reminder that God loves to bring joy to his people's hearts. And so he gives us good things to enjoy. And not sparingly or reluctantly, but richly. What I hope you're seeing is that the two threads that are interweaved through Ecclesiastes are also stitched together in the New Testament. As a source of meaning and ultimate satisfaction, as a place to put your hope prosperity is a disappointment. 
But nevertheless, whether you are prosperous or not, God gives joy day to day and he delights to do so. And once again, the Bible's teaching shapes the convictions of Christians in our time in a way that enables us to think and live distinctively. It's important, as I said before, I think, that we have a reputation for believing that worldly prosperity is not the promised land. But it's also important that we have a reputation for being able to enjoy the good gifts of God in a spirit of humble gratitude. At many points in history, Christians have had a reputation for wowserism more than enjoyment. And I think that's true today in many respects too. And I understand that the world will always deride us for not wanting to enjoy some of the things they want to enjoy. We're never going to win that battle. But nevertheless, it should be true that when someone in our world meets and spends time with a real-life Christian, as opposed to the caricature they might encounter in the media or in popular culture, when they meet a real one, they should find someone who knows there's no great satisfaction in prosperity, but also someone who finds moments of satisfaction and enjoyment in the everyday and who exudes thankfulness to God for them all. Sadly, it seems to me that the people around us in our city often make the mistake of looking for meaning and satisfaction in the things God designed for daily enjoyment. Have you noticed that things like food and drink and work have become in our, such, in our society so much larger than God designed them to be? Good wine and nice food and a great job These are the very things people in our culture see as signs of a prosperous life. And so these are the things so many people around us actually live for. But the people of God don't live for such things. We welcome them in our lives as expressions of God's grace and kindness. We enjoy them, but we don't wear them like a badge We don't think for a moment we're defined by them. We don't see them as markers of a prosperous life. And in this way, we distinguish ourselves from our neighbours and we point to something different. We issue an invitation to live in true prosperity and it's that same invitation that God has given to us and which we have accepted. So this is where we finish today with the invitation to live in prosperity. Not the town in South Carolina, that town is a symbol of the broken promises that prosperity makes to the people of our world. But the prosperity I'm talking about is the prosperity that never, ever disappoints. True prosperity, as we saw last week, is the life lived in fear and obedience to God. When we fear him, we're liberated from seeking meaning in the things of this world. And when we fear him, we're we're free to enjoy his gifts with glad hearts. And when we fear him, we find meaning and satisfaction in the sweet goodness of living for God's pleasure and praise. This is the life that Paul describes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, the life of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Verse 12, it's fighting the good fight of the faith. It's taking hold of the eternal life which God has called us to. 
yeah, eternal life. It's living, verse 14, without spot or blame until Jesus, our Saviour, comes to take us home. It's the life he describes so eloquently in verses 18 and 19 of 1 Timothy 6. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Here is prosperity. Being rich in good deeds, being generous and willing to share, treasure that lasts, the life, he says, that is truly life, not just a life that promises prosperity then lets you down, but a life of abundant joy and satisfaction now and forever. When the teacher of Ecclesiastes extends the invitation to live that life, he uses various words in different places in his book, but my favourite line is in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 6. There he says, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Read it to you again. Chapter 4, verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So here's the teacher's invitation to live a life of true prosperity, not the striving and clutching of those who want two handfuls and who chase something they never catch, but instead one handful full of God's good gifts, received with thanks, being enjoyed, resting rather than striving, and therefore content, tranquil. Godliness with contentment, as Paul would put it. Great gain, the life that is truly life. And over the years, I've found that picture from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 6, enormously helpful as I've sought to live my life under the sun and as I've tried to think God's thoughts about what prosperity really is. Uh, the tranquil handful... That's the phrase that sticks in my mind, the tranquil handful. And I offer you that picture today as an invitation from your Heavenly Father to your heart to receive what He wants to give, not just a handful of blessings, but a heart wonderfully at peace in Him. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Amen.